Early Turn by Sarah Butler, inspired by conversations with Francesca Alemo, Central Line train operator, read by Tessa Nicholson, part of Central Line Stories, a project by Sarah Butler and London Underground staff, commissioned by Art on the Underground, London Underground 2009. This morning, she just grunted and rolled away from him, tucking the duvet under her chin and curling her body into a question mark. There'd been a time, and it wasn't so long ago, that she'd get up with him when he was on earlies. She would make tea and sit huddled in her dressing gown, watching him with sleepy eyes as he lathered butter onto thick slices of toast, the world still dark outside the windows. Jake signs in at the depot and checks his schedule. Ealing Broadway, Epping, then back to White City for his meal break. His train's waiting for him in the east sidings. He settles himself into the cab, inserts his key into the control switch, types in his crew number and his radio ID, adjusts his seat, and he's away. When he switches ends at Ealing Broadway, he sees the sun like a heavy red balloon climbing over the horizon. It's going to be a beautiful day, but he can't relax. He's felt off kilter since this morning, maybe because of that play Sam took him to see last night, or the fact they'd failed yet again to have a sensible conversation about the wedding. Either way, when the train plunges into the tunnel east of White City, he feels his chest tighten and the beginnings of a headache at his temples. Usually, he rolls his eyes when the others talk about the tunnel, how it gets hold of whatever emotions you take into the cab with you and blows them out of proportion. Usually it doesn't bother him, but it's a relief to get to the end at Stratford and climb the long, straight uphill stretch into the light. The horses feel like the last straw. They're always there, just after Buckhurst Hill. Five horses, a marker if you'd like. Three are black and white. There's a chestnut one that reminds him of the dog he was given, aged ten, as some kind of softener after the divorce. And then there's a white one that always stands in the far corner of the field, away from the rest, like it isn't quite sure of itself. They are always there, but not today. He notices patterns. It's something he's tried to explain to Sam, how running the same track every day means he sees the small things, notices the changes. It's the trees he likes best, their endless optimism, the way that even when they're slowing down for the winter, they do it in style. And come spring, they're back in the driving seat like nothing's happened, shooting out tight green buds and paper-white blossom. He notices what appears and what disappears. He's angry about the play. It was in some theatre under a railway arch, a tiny space with exposed brick walls and a thick black curtain at the back. The entire cast was women, dukes, lords, everybody, which was unnecessary and confusing, in his opinion. That's the whole point of it, Jake, Sam said in the bar afterwards. There was nowhere to sit, so they had to stand by the wall, their jackets collecting dirt at their feet. She had wine-stained lips, dark like dried blood. It's supposed to take the viewer out of their comfort zone. It's supposed to make you question. She said it as though he was too stupid to have worked it out himself. That was what annoyed him. Loughton, Debden, Thaden boys. There's hardly enough time for a piss at Epping before he has to change ends and go. 
The headache is still there, lurking behind his vision now. Jake lets himself close his eyes for a moment and take a long breath. Then he shuts the doors, pushes the start buttons, and they're off, westbound. The CCTV images flicker out. The sky's blue, but there's a chill in the air, and the cab at this end is drafty as hell. Adultery, murder, justice. A bold reworking of Dante's tale of Francesca and Paolo. The posters outside the theatre had red text printed over a picture of two women kissing. As far as Jake could work out, Francesca was married to some woman dressed as a man, and the husband's brother Paolo, who was also a woman, fell in love with her. They read a book together, and at the point where the two people in the book kissed, they kissed too. Stupid, but hardly adultery, he couldn't help thinking. Francesca's husband came in at precisely that moment and wham-bam murdered the pair of them. The second half was set in hell, which for some reason involved a lot of red velvet sofas and blackboards, and effects that sounded, he told Sam afterwards, just like driving inside the tunnel. They're approaching where the horses are meant to be. Jake presses the whistle, and the orange-clad men to his left raise their hands in acknowledgement. Most probably, Jake tells himself, the horses have just been taken out for the day. Except it's never happened before. And now, as they near the field, he sees the flash of a white sign over by the fence. Some developer or other, chewing up the countryside. It makes him angry, but there's no one to tell. And if he doesn't let go of it now, the tunnel will get hold of it, and he'll pick an argument with Sam as soon as he gets home. He knows it. She'll look beautiful in white. He's assuming it's white. In fact, he's assuming the damn thing exists. She's been cagey about it. But then that's tradition, isn't it? Six months to go. A September wedding. There's a fair chance of sun, and the leaves might just be turning. There are things to sort out. That's what he's been trying to say to her, but every time he tries, their conversation trips up on itself, ties itself in knots. He's asked her if she's had second thoughts. It's to be expected. They can talk it through, he said. But each time she's just shaken her head, like she feels sorry for him. The tunnel's close now. He feels his body tense for the snap of darkness and the scream of metal resounding off the walls. It's like an animal, he thinks, like being inside of an animal and hearing it roar with anger. The edges of the tunnel sit around the train like an endless rib cage. He wonders if snakes have rib cages and decides they don't. To be bothered by the horses is stupid. It, it's just that he liked them. He liked it when they ran, manes flying, as though there wasn't a fence around the field and they could go as far as they wanted. They'll put an ugly block of flats there, whoever they are. He'll watch it grow. Yellow jacketed men and tall white cranes, foundations, breeze blocks, scaffolding. And later on, he'll see curtains appear in the windows, or flags or pot plants. There'll be bicycles chained to tiny balcony fences and lines of washing to tell you who's inside. But he'd rather five horses and a square of grass. After the wedding, they'll move east, out where there's more green to be had, where a person can afford to have a garden and more rooms than the bare minimum. It's what he's always wanted. A wife, 
two kids, or maybe three, a house in the country. They could have a horse. Bethnal Green Station is just visible, a slice of dense yellow light ahead. Nobody looks at him as the train rushes alongside the platform. They tell stories of ghosts here, he's heard. A boy with a gas mask, walking through doors. Jake lifts the handset. This train is ready to depart. Mind the doors. Mind the closing doors. They could have a horse, keep it in a field somewhere close by. The kids could learn to ride when they were old enough. Liverpool Street, bank. The feeling's still there. Jake flicks on the light and pulls an apple from his bag. It's disappointing, the flesh floury and tasteless. He takes a couple of half-hearted bites and ends up dropping it back into his bag. St Paul's. A couple kisses at the far end of the platform. The man has his hand on the small of the woman's back, as though worried she'll step away from him. Chancery Lane, Hoban. Past the ghost of Museum Station. Tottenham Court Road, Oxford Circus. Jake stands up, tries to drop his shoulders, lift his chin, straighten out his neck. His reflection is thrown back to him by the glass window. He looks like his father. Maybe he doesn't look like his father, but at that moment, Jake sees an image he's seen before. His father, his shoulders caved forward, standing at Jake's bedroom door. There's no good way to explain divorce to a ten-year-old. I hope you'll understand when you're older, his father had said. A cop-out, but probably Jake would have done the same. We don't make each other happy like we used to. That was another thing he'd said. But Jake was free-falling at that point. He was heading into the mouth of a dark black tunnel that roared like an animal, and he refused to listen to any more of his father's excuses. There was someone else. He'd found that out soon enough. Maybe all they'd done beforehand was read a book and steal a kiss. It's not something he's ever felt able to ask. The platform at Bond Street bleaches into view. Someone's left a kiwi fruit for the mice, and one's already chewed through the skin, leaving bright green memories of its teeth. Marble Arch, Lancaster Gate, Queensway. Jake stares at his reflection. But his father's gone. He switches the light off and sits back down, stares into the black space rushing towards him, the cable runs like clusters of veins on each side. He tries to remember the last time he and Sam had a good laugh. It was something that had attracted him to her in the first place, the way she would tip back her head and guffaw, a belly laugh like a man like she didn't care what anyone thought about her. Notting Hill Gate. A raft of passengers squeeze themselves into the first two carriages, and the suspension squeals as it inflates to support them. Jake presses his earplugs tighter into his ears. Holland Park, Shepherd's Bush. New Year, he thinks. They'd laughed then. A story about his sweat day that he'd told a hundred times over. He's grown adept at painting the picture for his audience. A young man, his first day driving alone, struggling to understand what the controllers were saying over the radio. His decision to repeat back something he'd made up freaked them out so they started talking slowly enough for him to pick out the words. There are options. He sees that. He could accept that perhaps there won't be a dress, 
or a house with enough space to breathe, or a horse in a field somewhere. He could duck out now, cut his losses, not risk standing at his son's door in ten years' time, trying to explain that the cracks appeared long before he was born, that he's not to blame himself for any of it, that life is like driving a train. He might notice all the thousands of tiny changes happening along the line you travel every day, but chances are you'll miss the things that are out of your field of vision until it's too late to make things right. Or he could pick up a bunch of flowers on his way home tonight. Daffodils or irises, something colourful. He could cook his lasagna. It's better than his mother's. Even his stepdad risks his neck and admits that. He could lay the table in the kitchen like they do in restaurants. White tablecloth, folded napkins. He could make a space for a conversation and see what happens. The train leaves the tunnel again at White City, and Jake blinks, mole-like, into the spring morning. He writes the shopping list in his head. Mints, red wine, bay leaves, onion, garlic, parmesan. He pictures her, sitting opposite him in the kitchen that's too small, really, for a table that size, raising her glass to meet his, lifting back her head and laughing. <laughs>